All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Doomer Optimism Podcast. This is Anarcho Contrarian, or AC for short, and I am here tonight with Trace Crow uh, as co-host. And we're here to talk to our friend and overall Twitter nice guy, uh, Tom Ruby. That's how I'm going to frame the conversation. You're, you're, I think, the nicest account uh, on Twitter. And we're here to talk a little bit about your homestead, uh, your path to Doomer Optimism, uh, your approach to localism, some of your professional work, and, and some of your relationship with Trace. Um, so I would like to maybe start by allowing you to introduce yourself and give us the Tom Ruby 101. So take it away, Tom. Well, that's something that nobody's ever said to me, the nicest account on Twitter. <laughs> and there's a first time, I guess, for, for, for a lot of things. That Thank you, AC. That's very kind. Um, let's see. Um, I was, uh, I came to Doomer Optimism um, by accident because the algorithm, I guess, brought me um, to a small circle. And that circle started expanding. And I really like the circle. I mean, I, I, I like it because it fits. Um, well, I guess, you know, I, I'm, I find myself among kindred spirits there. Um, Pope Benedict, when he was a young, when, when he was a young priest, you know, he said the world wants to give you comfort, but you weren't made for comfort. You were made for greatness. And and I think that there's people within the Doomer Optimism Circle that have a greatness inside them. They don't necessarily flout it. Some of them don't even necessarily know it. But I think that if we ever get hit with an, any kind of a, a, a Doomer type event, like even something natural, like a Carrington event, that's the one that I always use because it happened in the past. I think there's going to be a lot of people in the DO circle that are going to lead with greatness. So that's how I came to the DO circle. Um, a little bit about me. Um, I was born in Yugoslavia when it was a communist country. Um, my mother escaped with me. My father was a, uh, my father was in Paris as a guest worker. Um, my mother literally escaped. The reason she had to escape was because my family was enemies of the state because they fought against both the Germans and the communists during World War II. Um, Tito killed all of our adult uh, male family members, dumped them in a ravine near our village. And um, my mother never knew her father. He was in a German POW camp um, with his brother. They were captured 300 miles and three years apart ended up in the same POW camp and ended up uh, coming across the, the ocean in 1947 um, and lived the American dream. My mother's father was a janitor at a fine men's clothier in Los Angeles, bought a house in Westwood, uh, bought a house in Santa Monica. His, his brother, my mother's uncle, um, was a construction worker, a union construction worker that built the freeways and aqueducts of Southern California. And he also bought a house in Santa Monica. Um, I don't think we can do that anymore in America today. So when my mother escaped and came over here to the States with me, um, that made my children first generation Americans. And um, I was the first person in my family's bloodline to go to college, to get advanced degrees. Um, 
I served 26 years as an officer in the Air Force and retired to the farm here in the knobs of central Kentucky. Um, and it's funny, my, my cousins that I'm really close with in Serbia say, you know, all we wanted all of our lives was to get out of the village and move to the city. And you couldn't wait to get out of the city and move to the village. And we don't get it. And they don't, and they, they won't. <laughs> um, and I've never been happier and my family's never been happier. So, um, today, you know, for a for the last 11 years, I've had a very small, you know, one, one man shop consultancy. I do small business consulting and leadership development. Um, and I, I try to help small businesses and, and, and their CEOs, um, you know, try to do things like how to not suck at business, you know, when, because nobody teaches you these things, people have really good ideas, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, what I've learned in the last 12 years is I'm shocked that we have an economy in this country. Um, the number of people that have 2,600 emails in their inbox and don't have any folders is just shocking to me. And, um, and yet they still make money somehow. And, and most of them really want to get better. And so, uh, that's what I do now on my, on my, on my time. And I do a lot less of that than I do, uh, volunteering and, um, mentoring and traveling to see my grandkids and, and seeing cool stuff with my wife and, um, doing little side projects like the cultural debris excursion with my, with my friend, Alan Cornett. So that's it. That's the high level overview, maybe too much. I didn't know it was great. I, I love I love the uh, city city to country um, angle. So what what why Kentucky? What brought you to Kentucky? You know when uh, uh, Laura and I joke about when we were little, meaning when we were in our early days of our marriage, um, we drove across the country several times, north, south, and east, west, and and quite a few of our drives took us through Kentucky on the highways. Um, you know, we even did one trip where we where we took like county roads and state roads through through a good part of the state. And for for several trips, we said it's too bad there isn't a base in this state. This would be a cool place to be based. And but there were no Air Force bases in the state. And that you know, it doesn't work that way. You can't just say, "Hey, I'd like to I'd like to go live in this state," okay? Because that's not how assignments work. So. Um, there came a point in my career where the Air Force sent me to go get a PhD and they said, you know, you can go wherever you want and study whatever you want. And I knew I wanted to study uh, morality and warfare, international relations. And I asked the dean at the school, you know, tell me, what do you think about University of Kentucky? And he says, great program. They got a great faculty right now. That'd be a great place for you to go. And so that's what we did. You know, we ended up in Lexington for three years. And while we were in Lexington, we really fell in love with the state and, uh, the, you know, the, the honest to God truth is that we were out looking for property and we were, we were kind of bummed out because one of the properties that we really were hoping to find or hoping to buy, um, it was in a County that wasn't zoned and they were going to put up an, um, like an industrial plant behind the, behind the property. And so we were kind of bummed out and I heard a voice in my head, uh, like an angel saying Danville. 
And I called Laura and I said, hey, the voice is telling me Danville. And she says, you ever been to Danville? I said, yeah, I mean, I've driven through it on the way to and from Maker's Mark and uh, the distillery. She goes, well, is it nice? I go, yeah, it's really nice. So we uh, we started looking up farm properties and we found one and called the uh, called the realtor and she asked us about our family situation and what we were going to be doing. And she said, you know, that's just not the right property for you. But it's funny that you should call me because somebody just handed me a piece of paper with a listing that's not even up yet. Would you like to go see it? And we said yes. And and it was the most beautiful combination of uh, pasture and woods that we could imagine. And uh, today we've we have 15 and a half acres and we've taken about seven or eight acres that was in pasture and turned it into woods um, in a deliberate, you know, move with our state foresters in conjunction with the, with the, with the foresters and, and getting a lot of help. And, you know, when I say getting a lot of help, I'm talking about ideas, but, you know, the sweat of, of identifying trees in the fall, marking them. And then in the winter, uh, in the middle of winter, when it's really cold, digging them out by the roots and then transplanting them, you know, over a period of years. And, you know, you've seen the Twitter threads, what it used to look like when it was a, <clears throat> when it was a hayed pasture. And today it's, a, today it's, you know, woods that are 15, 20 feet tall and it's just wonderful. So we couldn't be happier with, with where we live. And, um, that's it. It's fantastic. So that, that's a quick quick overview, and I, there's a couple threads that I want to get back to. But one thing that you hadn't mentioned yet is uh, a little bit more on your your faith uh, and your involvement in the Society of G.K. Chesterton. And I'm assuming those those things are linked in some way. So can you give us a, a quick high level there? Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm an adult convert to Catholicism, and G.K. Chesterton had had a lot to do with that. Um, his his writings and um his his joy first of all his his wit um he was humorous he was humorous but really his just really really incisive logic you know he he could he could cut through an issue um that you know he he admits to lots of gray areas in the world but he also is fairly black and white in, in, you know, um, what's right and wrong. And, and I looked at his own, uh, story about how he went from, you know, atheism to, um, you know, very, very deep depression to a basic Christianity defining his way into the church. And it, it kind of mirrored my own, um, my own conversion story. And I started, I started reading him. Um, I became a member of the society years and years ago and, and subscribed to Gilbert magazine. And I started going to the conferences. Um, I met, uh, I, I met the leadership in the society. Um, I started, you know, offering an article here and there. And um, one day they asked me to be on the board. And I, I, I take that as one of my highest honors, you know, getting getting to do that around a lot of people around the table that are far more qualified than I am. So can you tell us a little bit more about the society itself? 
how it functions, what its mission is? Sure. So the, the idea is to, to spread the word, to spread the word about who this guy G.K. Chesterton was, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, we, we don't have it. We don't have an analog here in the States. I mean, if you if I was to say to you, Beyonce or Taylor Swift and, and then say, yeah, Chesterton was more popular in the United States in his day than Beyonce and Taylor Swift are today. People would shake their head and go, I've never even heard of the guy. How can that be possible? When he when he came to the United States on a couple of trips, he sold out auditoriums from from, you know, Madison Square Garden in New York to, you know, community theaters and playhouses across the Midwest. Um, he he spent three months at, at Notre Dame speaking to crowds that couldn't fit in the convocation center. OK, um, he was a he was a journalist. He was an author. Um, he wrote literary criticism. He wrote books about Charles, like his book about Charles Dickens is one of the best books that you can read on any subject anywhere. Um, he wrote 4,000 newspaper columns, published the newspaper himself, was the inventor of detective fiction. Okay. Arthur Conan Doyle learned from G.K. Chesterton. Um, he wrote... Uh, what are what are considered hands down to be the best biographies of both um, St. Francis of Assisi and St. Thomas Aquinas, and and both are oh stand by I'm sorry, it, both biographies are short. They're very very eminently readable, um, and and they're wonderful. So the breadth of his writings um, were just were magnificent. But he. Uh, He, he wrote a book called Heretics about, um, you know, modern day heresies of the time. And this was before he was a Catholic. He wrote, he followed that up with a book called Orthodoxy that came out 10 years before his conversion. And um, his, I think his greatest work was probably The Everlasting Man. When I picked up that book, I had heard about it for a long time. When I finally picked it up, I... I read the first chapter and I put it down and I said to my wife, honey, I got to go to the store. She says, okay, what for? I said, I got to get a highlighter. And I, you know, I came back today. I would have just, you know, underlined and written margin notes, but I was young then. And um, his, his, uh, his detective fiction is outstanding. His literary criticism is outstanding. I, I, I could, I could uh, recommend multiple different books for you. That's so the great. society, the society is about getting the word out about him, um, evangelization through the work of G.K. Chesterton, and um, for the last few years, the society has um, has founded and and run the the Chesterton Schools Network. It is now not just the fastest growing, but the largest network of um, classic private Catholic schools in the country, and and it's growing very very fast. These are affordable, classical education schools, small schools. Some of them even have sports programs. Okay. But, um, they, they teach your kids the timeless classics, like all liberal arts education used to be when, when, you know, when we were young and before. Um, and so, uh, the society has a literary arm, the literary society arm to it. 
and it has the educational arm to it. And, and I, I'm just really excited to be part of it. That's great. Cool. Yeah. Huge, huge fan of Chesterton. So I, I hope to get back to each one of these points, you know, maybe in a little bit more detail and in order. So maybe sure. we can go back towards the beginning and, and touch on your, your, your current professional work, which is, you know, sort of leadership coaching, leadership development. And there's a thread there uh, with, with Trace. And maybe we can start with you, Trace, and just talk about your relationship that you've established with Tom which I think is a great, you know, sort of DO to IRL uh, uh, success story, if you will. So, so give us the high level there, Trace. And I'd love to hear you guys just in general talk about your, your in real life experience. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, is um, I met Tom for the first time when I was on a panel discussion with him. Um, was it last year, Tom, or was it earlier this year? I don't know. Time is very weird now, but... Um, I think it was December and we were talking about parenting. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was Doomer Optimism Parenting, whatever that means. Uh, I don't think we came to any kind of consensus on that in that 90 minute conversation. But while we were having it, I was like, I was straight up vibing with Tom. Like I just met this guy and the things he was saying about his journey really resonated with me because I felt like I was like a, you know, uh, uh, turn back the clock, like a 15 year younger version of him himself, you know? And I was thinking like, gosh, the way he's describing the way he got out of the rat race, you know, and, and his recognition, um, you know, it happened when he had a, his oldest was 12. At the time I interviewed him, my oldest was 12. And I'm sitting here thinking like, gosh, I'm feeling the same way. Like I'm on a speeding train and I can't get off of it. Um, and uh, I think it was about a couple months after that, uh, it kind of occurred to me that like, I really, you know, I'm at this position in my career where I could really use someone who's been there, done that to be a mentor and kind of help me grow into a better leader. And the first person that came to mind was Tom. And so I think I just DM'd you over Twitter, right, Tom? And was just like, hey, can, can, uh, would you be open to being a mentor? Uh, and his response was, I rarely say no to someone who asks. He's like, if you know enough to know that you need a mentor and, and you're actually asking me, I'll at least give you the time of day to, to, to explore this further. Um, and uh, it was it was pretty well, you know, I mean, it was a it was a perfect uh, situation for me. Like the second we started talking, uh, I realized that he had a lot of things to teach me personally in business. Um I think spiritually as well, you know, I'm, I'm not a Catholic. I, I would, I would, I would say that I'm not even a Christian, but like there's aspects to what I do. There's aspects um, to the way I view the world that is, is very, very spiritual, very religious. And I would say, you know, arguably is in the Judeo Christian, you know, um, tradition. And, and so there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of resonance with what we've been doing. Um, and um, I can't speak, highly enough about the man he's 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 a beautiful person and and um uh i hope i hope to have a knob of my own someday <laughs> right now i just got the old crow hill here in the suburbs of tucker uh suburbs of atlanta but um uh, i'm constantly um uh energized and in, in in like really inspired by what you do tom i actually have a funny story about tom as he came to atlanta to work with me and uh, the founder of Roots Down, my, my business partner, Jamie. And um, him and I went out to dinner one of the nights and 
Tom, you're, you're one of the most knowledgeable people about oaks I think I've ever met in my life. Like, you know, like all the different versions of oaks. And we went past what do you remember what kind of oak it was? Because you were like, this thing only like this thing only drops acorns like every four years. And there were acorns everywhere. And you just picked up a few and put them in your pocket. And I'm going to I'm going to he's like, I'm going to take this back to the knob with me. And I was thinking, like, I, I wrote down here, I was like, we need to talk about your gorilla, your gorilla arborism. You're, you're like, yeah, you there is, sort of there's, pick seeds there's, up, acorns, you pick them up all around the world and bring them back to the knob. I, I think that's just amazing. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm kind of like a squirrel in that respect. And and I do, <laughs> I, I. it's so funny that you that you caught on to that. I don't remember the the, the, the type of tree. Um, I, I, now that you say it, I... I remember that um, um, that I was intrigued and I, that I, that I brought home some acorns, but I would have I would have forgotten that had you not just mentioned it. Yeah, I um, thought it was a beautiful thing. As you were doing it, I was like, "Gosh, I wish I had space on my property to like grab one of these acorns." Because you you made it seem like it was like we just. But I think it's the way you view the world, Tom. That you're walking through. You know, we're just going from dinner to the car, right, to take you back to your place. And you're just like, wow, look at these magical trees. They're just sprinkling their their joy all over the world. And I'm going to snag a bit of that for myself. And, you know, I personally have walked past those those trees probably a hundred times. Right. And and never thought twice about it. Um, yeah. The, and, the Lord gives us the Lord. Give, he, you know, the Lord built the garden. He created the garden. And then he created the gardener. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that's not a theological statement. Okay. It's a, it's, it's a statement of, it's a statement of fact of precedence. Okay. First God created the garden and then he created the gardener and the, he, he gave the gardener tasks and, you know, knowledge to, and dominion over that garden. And, you know, we do a lot in this world to ruin our garden and it, but we can, we can fix it really quickly. Um, and one way to do that is to, is to plant more trees, especially nut bearing trees and fruit bearing trees and fruit forests. And so um, it's, it's, it's neat that you picked up on that trace. And um, I love what you're doing with your place as well. I mean, you're trying to make a food forest out of a, out of a suburb, you know, out of a suburban city lot. Mm -hmm. And, and I will say about trace that, you know, I've, I've had uh, quite a few mentees over the last 10 years that, you know, where the, the, you know, that people are going through whatever they're going through at the time and they need somebody to talk to and they want to bounce some ideas off of. And that's great. Everybody needs that. And I've had a few guys that have, you know, that have said, okay, that was a great book. Okay. What's the next one? Okay. Great book. What's the next one? Great book. What's the next one? And then suddenly I don't hear from him anymore. And, and that's fine too. But Trace wants to talk regularly and it's not free therapy. He's not just calling me to be his free therapist. Okay. He's, he's actually, you know, doing the mentoring thing the right way. He's actually asking specific questions. He's, He's challenging. He's saying, how would I implement that? Okay. I've got a problem with this. And and then he goes and tries it. And it's, it's wonderful to, to have someone like Trace that, that takes it seriously. And I think that if you get to the point in life where somebody calls you and asks you, you know, for, for mentoring help, you, 
you, you ought to you ought to probably at least try. Not everybody's going to be a good mentor because it, it it's not like George Costanza, you know, where where you know the girl says, "Well, what do you think about this book?" And he goes, "Why don't you read it and tell me what you think about it?" Okay, that's that, that's not how it goes, you know. So I, I, I'm very happy to be friends with Trace. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. Um, all right, so so you 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 touched on you know the second layer, which is sort of the gardening gardening aspect, and I'd like to spend some time you know going going back there and talking a little bit more about your homestead and, and your your approach uh, in life as gardener, quote unquote. Um, um, so you you talked about your your fifteen plus acres. Um, you know what what is your approach to your land, Tom? How how do you what vision do you have for it? How do you manage it? Um, you know, what, are there economic endeavors on your land? Is it uh, strictly recreational hobbyist? You know, give us a little bit more in depth. It's, it's interesting. Um, you know, the first thing that the, the first thing that my first state forester said is how much, how, how do you want to make money off of your land? You know, do you want to, you want to, you want to get, you want to get cash out of your timber? What do you want to do? Some of the trees had been marked for for timbering and i i've been told on multiple occasions you can get six to ten thousand dollars for that white oak right there um because i have some really really old growth white oaks and you know there's a lot of cooperages around here that make barrels for the bourbon industry and you know bourbon has to be put in new charred oak barrels and you know believe it or not the white oaks are just getting depleted and so now they're going to have to, you know, you, you can see the distilleries are trying to use different kinds of oaks. And um, and <clears throat> when I was asked if I want to sell this, you know, if I want to sell this tree for $6,000, I thought, crap, I'm going to spend that money pretty quickly. And it's going to take 200 years for this tree to grow back. <laughs> Heck no. And the biomass that that tree drops every year in the form of food for the animals, hey, you can't replace that. Then what happens? So, you know, for, okay, here, here's, here's a simplified way of how I see the, uh, our garden, especially I see it as potential energy. Okay. The, the, it's, it's like a heavy, it's like a heavy weight on a cliff. That's potential energy, right? Until it gets pushed over the edge and, and falls to the ground. It's not actual energy, but it's potential energy. So, um, I see a lot of people, especially in DO circles, who, you know, were like, oh, you cannot, do not till your soil. That's the worst thing you can do. And and none of those people have had to deal with binweed. Okay. Um when you have when you when you have a garden and we've got a pretty big walled-in garden, okay, and we have a walled-in garden for very specific reasons. One, it keeps the deer out, two, it keeps the warm temperatures in. And our very first winter here, we had six weeks additional growing season. Okay, six weeks from the last frost to the to the first frost inside the garden, we had a six week longer growing season than outside the walls. Okay, so that's a really important thing. But being close to woods, okay, in our zone of the country is really hard. Okay, you're constantly fighting the weeds. Okay, we 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 fight with knotweed, and we fight with binweed constantly. Okay. And for all the guys that are out there going, oh, all you got to do is just plant some broadleaf squash. They'll keep down the, they'll keep the sun 
you know, off of them and, you know, do the Trinity and it'll work great. And I go, great. Come show me what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> okay. Come show me what I'm doing wrong now. So we, we grow enough tomatoes and peppers um, that I can, that I can make, you know, I can lots and lots of roasted peppers and tomatoes, you know, to serve with eggs and cheese and bread on charcuterie boards. And, and yeah, I get a lot of um, squash, but really the garden is potential energy in case we ever have to feed ourselves. We have an orchard um, that we, that we planted again with, with the view to the long, you know, with the view to the long term. Um, we have uh, apple trees, uh, lots of plum trees, cherry trees, um, a couple of peach trees. And, you know, last year we had so much fruit that there was a standing there was a standing invitation here on the knob. Anybody could come any day of the week with as big a bucket as you want and pick as many plums and apples as you want. And they did. And, and still more than half the fruit fell to the ground. Okay. And then it fed the deer and then we ate the deer. But <clears throat> I know a lot of the DO guys would be out there saying, well, heck, why didn't you like cider at all? Or why didn't you? Well, because that's not my gig. Okay. I mean, if I need to, I can, I can do all that. I know how to do it. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm playing around with, with, with certain things, but it's, it's nice. We have a really nice orchard. We've, uh, we can grow our vegetables. Um, and if, if we go, if we go away on vacation for a couple of weeks, we come back, the garden looks like, it looks like a jungle, you know, but, it, but I know that if we need to live off of it, we can. So we save seeds and we dry out seeds and, I haven't I haven't bought a tomato plant in six or seven years because, you know, I let tomatoes I, I let the tomatoes rot. I throw them up in the air and wherever they splat, they the next year tomatoes come up. It's awesome. Hmm. Do you have any perennials um, planted oh, yeah. in the oh, yeah, walled yeah. garden? Yeah. So so I think I've sent you some pictures, but half of our garden is just perennials, mm -hmm. and actually more than half. The, so we have six thousand square feet inside the walled garden, and so I would say probably 4,000 square feet of that is either <clears throat> decorative paths or and perennials, um, herbs, um, and, and lots and lots of perennial flowers. Lovely. So uh, you kind of opened the door with the cider, with uh, mentioning the cider. You make liqueur. What is, yeah, talk about that. It always looks so amazing. I, I, I have to get up to Kentucky um, to have some of it. <laughs> I, I, you're welcome. And I'm having I'm, I'm having a, a a little mug of maple liqueur right now. So I, so this comes from tapping our maple trees, and it's it's too valuable to me to boil it down into syrup um, for for pancakes. Um, so I, I make um, I boil it down and I make maple liqueur out of it. So <clears throat> what started was a, about. 10 years ago, uh, my, one of my dear friends from, from Alabama came up to visit and we were drinking some chartreuse and we were both talking about how good it is and how expensive it is. It's $65, $70 a bottle for, for a bottle of chartreuse. And, and I thought, you know, I've got, a, I got a thousand wild herbs out here. I'll bet you I can make chartreuse. And he goes, yeah, I bet you probably could. Do you know how? I go, no. 
but I'm about to find out. <laughs> and so I looked up how to make liqueur and it's pretty damn simple. You, you get 95% grain alcohol and you steep something in it for a while. And, and so the first thing I did is I started, you know, I went out to my garden and I picked a bunch of, you know, marjoram and different kinds of thyme and uh, sage and uh, tarragon. And, and then, and then I just started going into the wild herbs. My, my current, my current wild herb liqueur has 21 different herbs in it. And, um, well, it turned out better than the chartreuse. And man, I, I love the monk. I love the monks at the, at the Abbey of Chartreuse, but I'm not giving them 70 bucks a bottle. anymore. (laughs) And, and so at this point, then it became a game. Then it literally became a game. So what else can we do? Well, I get, I, you know, we get, you know, hundreds of pounds of wild blackberries. If we wanted to eat them every year, we can't eat all of our blackberries that grow here. Wild blackberries. Can we make liqueur out of it? Yep mulberries that are falling off the trees yep um sassafras wow sassafras is pretty cool i bet we can make liqueur out of that it's stunningly good um oh let's see if we can make liqueur out of maple syrup yep you could do that hey i'm growing some hops i'll bet you the germans make a, the bavarians make a really good hopfen liqueur okay and and i thought well, I'm, I haven't been to Bavaria in a while. I'll, let's see if I can make Hopfen liqueur. <laughs> and I use raw honey from here on the knob. And I go, yep, that's great. Hopfen liqueur is great. And, oh, hey, hazelnut crop came in really good this year from our hazelnuts. Let's try that. It's 10 times better than Frangelico. And so now it's 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 a game. You you've seen, you saw the pictures from, you know, when we went up to Michigan. I've, I've found... I found a bunch of wild apples up on up on the UP and wild apples up in Minnesota in a town that doesn't even exist anymore. And so, yeah, that wild apple liqueur was just outstanding. Mm. So so hang on. I was going to say the beauty of this is it's not like going to the store where you can just buy more chartreuse or buy more beer. Okay. I only have enough. I've, I've got however much um, maple syrup I boil down is how much liqueur I can make. And that's got to last me until the next time I get more. Okay. When I make my wild persimmon liqueur, this, this year it's going to be a very small run because this year we had a, we had a horrific drought in the spring this year from um, the, the end of March we didn't get any rain the last week of March, all of April and all of May and all of June. We didn't get any rain. And so none of our fruit trees produced this year. We didn't get a single fruit off of our fruit trees after a bounty crop last year. And the wild, you know, the wild persimmons this year, I got a small bowl full of them. So whatever we can make out of that small bowl full of persimmons is going to be all the liqueur I've got for this year. So it, it's, it's kind of like God's way of saying, Hey, be thankful for what you get and enjoy it and be thankful for that, you know, and, and wait in, in and wait in joyful anticipation until the next crop. Hmm. Hmm. 
So give, I'm so fascinated by this. Uh, and also I take offense with your use of maple syrup, given my cultural heritage. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I've got plenty. I got plenty of maple trees here. And I just, it's, it's how much, how much can I tap? I'm not in an industrial operation like you guys. Are. I'm just playing. Um, uh, the basics, right? So Everclear grain alcohol, 95% alcohol, Steep, steep some product in it, a fruit, uh, nut, uh, herbs, yep. what have you. Yep. Time frame, how long? <clears throat> 10 days to two weeks. I sit okay. it in the window. Um, and then it? Are you shaking it, it every day? I, I do, just because it's fun. And yeah. I shake it up every day. And so what happens with the herbs is the herbs go in pliable, right? When you when If you pick yarrow, wild yarrow, right? It's like a little fern, Okay. After two weeks, it comes out brittle. Okay, it's completely brown. Mm. All all the chlorophyll has been removed. All of the oils. So that's what makes it so healthy. The essential oils out of all of these plants are taken out. And what's what you're left with is dried, brittle plants because the alcohol it literally dehydrates those plants. Mm. It removes it removes all of their oils out of them. And so what I do is I, you know, I run it through a sieve and cheesecloth. And then uh, I either, you know, sometimes I, sometimes like always I burn the hops because it's awesome to listen to that crackling sound because they're full of that alcohol. Um, but what I do like with the, with the fruits is I run them through the cheesecloth and I squeeze the crap out of them to get every last bit of the liquid and the oils out. Um, and chartreuse is nice and clear um because they actually filter it they actually remove all the oil they let it they let it um settle and and then they siphon off the top okay and then there's wastage and when when we make ours um none of that goes to waste and in fact before we drink it you're always flipping the bottle over to you know to give it a good shake Mm -hmm. so that you can so that you can get the oils even maple now, syrup, has, even maple syrup has oil in it. It's fascinating. Sure. Now, are you cutting it, and are you yes. sweet, yeah, yeah. sweetening you cut it? it? It's to be a liqueur. You need to cut it, and you need to slightly sweeten it. So, like my fruit liqueurs get very, very little sugar, if any. The herbals uh, all get a little bit of sugar. Um, how much is the is you know. <laughs> Uh, there's a sweet spot right there. You don't want to get too sweet, but if you, if you don't add enough, it can, um, people will think it's stronger in alcohol than it actually is. Mm. Um, I cut it in half. So it ends up being somewhere in the vicinity of, uh, you know, 95 proof, which is about what chartreuse is. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's about what a decent bourbon is, right? Mm. So, you, so you cut, like your rule of thumb is, is cut it by half. Yeah. So however much alcohol you put in, that much water you put in. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then shelf life uh, for an like extended forever. I mean, for an extended yeah, period. Yeah. yeah. It, it's forever, but it, ne- it doesn't make it to forever because <laughs> what, ends up, what ends up happening is this. Uh, I don't think I drink half of our liqueur because it ends up going as gifts and when people come over, they want it. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a novelty for a lot of people, but you know, so when I was just in Genoa and the, you know, the girls that run the B and B that, that are, that our group, that our cultural debris group stayed at, you know, Fanny 
loved the maple and I knew how much she liked it. <clears throat> so I was very, I was, I was very careful about how much of that we doled out to the guests so that I could leave her a half liter. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, you know, uh, Elena got a, uh, she got a half liter of the, of the herbal and, you know, Rosa, the lady that, that is the, makes the best gelato in the world. She got, you know, uh, she got a bottle of the apple. So, you know, it's, it's a joy to give away as a gift. Sure. Now, what about wines? Are you, you strictly know, cordials? <clears throat> No, I, I just stick with cordials and it's not that I can't like my, uh, I've got a son-in-law that, that, you know, he loves making beer. And so we've done beer here together. Um, and what I've done is I've got a neighbor here on the, on the knob that may or may not have a still. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, who shall go nameless, but he gets a lot of the fruits and makes brandies out of them, you know, and, and he ends up, he can give me um, grain alcohol that's left over. That's essentially a byproduct for him mm -hmm. to make my own. And that's now, now we're getting into distributism, right? Now we're getting into localism. Sure. Sure. That's where I want to go next. So, sort of first, um, you know, you talked about your, your, your gardening and your approach to your property is, you know, stored energy, uh, you know, sort of a hedge against uh, uncertain times, perhaps. Uh, how did you get there? How did you get to that frame of mind? Uh, why? So, I, in the Air Force, I was a I was a planner. I was an intelligence officer, and and then I ended up being a, a, a strategic planner. So, I started I started out as a as a as a young officer, actually planning missions. Uh, to Baghdad in during Desert Storm, and and how to efficiently take down certain types of systems, and it made me think about our own systems. So it made me think about what were the vulnerabilities here in the United States, because I I thought about vulnerabilities in other countries, right? So not just in water supplies, but electrical power, and you know, it, people in this country would be shocked if they knew. Like I, I can't give you the exact number, so I won't, but it's a, it's an extremely small number. Okay. If, if I was to ask you how many power substation transformers do you think there are in bench stock in this country? Okay. For, for the total, the sum total of all the number of um, utilities that we have in this country, what is the total number of spare power transformers for substations. How many do you think there are in this country? It, I, I think that the actual number is under 20. Okay. For the whole country. Okay. If there's a, if there's a cascading grid failure in this country, and I'm not talking about from a cyber attack, I'm just talking about from something that's natural, like the Carrington event. Everybody should look up what the Carrington event is. It, it was, a, it was a solar storm that hit, that hit the earth in 1859. Okay. And it essentially, it blew up anything that was, that was electric. So yeah, don't tell me that we're, there wasn't electricity at the time. I know, but there were, there, there were, um, uh, like telegraph lines, 
and and there were early like barbed wire and it literally blew up everywhere there that it that existed there was so much energy put out by the sun that it, it fried everything it literally blew up like barbed wire um if the carrington event hit the earth today there there's no way that you could like how do you make new power transformers without power how do you like how do you rebuild the grid how do you rebuild the power grid? How do you pump oil out of the ground without electricity? How do you refine oil without electricity? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, so I started thinking about, okay, how, how did the world exist? Like we got out of the dark ages, you know, the dark ages were dark. Why? Because the, uh, uh, the, the people that invaded Europe burned all the libraries. Okay. And so all the knowledge was gone within a generation. And it took a long time to get that back. If you read Thomas Cahill's How the Irish Saved Civilization, it was great because Irish monks had books that had not been burned. And they, they, they took upon themselves a decades long program of copying multiple copies of everything in their libraries and then sending them out with monks to spread, to re to repopulate libraries across Europe. It was, it's, fa it's fantastic. So what would we do in that type of situation today? You know, one of the best books that you can read on that is a canticle for Leibowitz. Um, wonderful. And so I started thinking, well, what could I do at a practical level? Okay. Well, I could, I could learn how to, how to garden. I could build a house that's resilient. Okay. And so we I set upon a, a, a program of 15 year plan of, you know, my last 15 years in the Air Force, I actually designed a home and then we built it um, so that we could live on in the case of a grid down failure. So I don't think of myself as a doomsday prepper at, at all, but I do think in terms of resilience and having a place that that's big enough for the whole family, all of our kids and their families to live and they can help all of our neighbors. And believe it or not, our neighbors here on the knob, we talk about resilience. We talk about who has cisterns, you know, how do we get water? How do we actually, you know, do farming and stuff like that? And, and a big part of that is to let nature grow the food for you. So, um, in years past, I have made, um, acorn muffins in the wintertime by going out and collecting acorns and shelling the acorns and then taking the, you know, boiling the tannins out of that. And then if you need to, guess what you can save that water for, for tanning and um, but, but actually figuring out, well, how, how did, the, how did the native Americans do this? Okay. They didn't have power. All right. And you know, we, it's, it's, it's almost sad to say it, but the reason that we don't eat all of our walnuts here is because we just have too many to pick up. Okay. But if we had to, we could survive off of that. We could survive off of acorns. We could survive off of persimmons, right? Wild persimmons. And and pawpaws and and the the you know the fruits that we have food forests so let's start let's start building uh let, let's plant an orchard and now i've got runners that are coming up from our trees and i and i dig those up and i put them out into the into the edges of our woods you know so that more fruit trees can grow and 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 that's that's the whole vision of 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 how we're here and why i love it so you're i mean you're banking natural capital, right? You're making significant investments uh, in your natural capital. And, and you talked a little bit about 
and perhaps your social capital and we, and we can go there. You know, I think, I think the first time I came across you, Tom, it was your, your thread about the ladies walking club, which like yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. tickled me to death. I don't know when I, when I just read that phrase, I was like, that is amazing. So like you had invited this local ladies walking club, which I presume is a walking club for ladies that get together on a regular basis, just to a get to know each other. B, get to know a place and both of those things I'm very passionate about. And I was like, who's this guy, Tom Ruby? And I, you know, looked into your, 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 your threads and uh, amazing content. And, you know, just the, the way you seem to interface uh, well, at the beginning, at the top of the hour, you know, I talked about the way you interface with people online, you know, very positive energy, uh, um, very, very friendly, friendliest guy on Twitter. Um, but, you know, tell me a little bit more about how you integrate with your community. I mean, you can, well, I think you, I think consider yourself a localist, you know, what does that mean do. to you? It's funny. You know, you mentioned the ladies walking club. It, it was actually, uh, it was a, the mother of a client of mine, you know, a, a, a local CEO of a very successful uh, local business, two counties away. And um, he took me to have soup at his mom's house one day when, uh, when it was my day to go down and, and, and visit the company. And, we got to talking and, you know, we had a lot of the same interests and, and, uh, the next time I went down, I brought her some liqueurs and she says, Hey, I want to learn how to make these. And so I, I taught her how to make them. And she says, Hey, I want to, I want to come to your farm, but can I bring my friends? I go, yeah, sure. How many? She goes like 38. I said, okay, sure. And <laughs> who are these 38 friends? She goes, the Casey County women's walking club. And I said, yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. She goes, could, you, you want to, you know, talk to them about simpling and I, because I had told her that the, you know, there's, I love the English word, the old English word for, for picking wild herbs is simpling. Mm -hmm. I love, I love that. I want you to talk to the ladies about simpling and, and about making liqueurs and, and then, and then would you walk them through the, would you walk them through your farm and show them the different plants and let them pick their own, you know, I said, absolutely. That was just, that was just wonderful. And, <clears throat> you know, the first person that I, that, that, that I met uh, when we moved here was my state forester. And the second person that I met was my uh, horticultural extension agent, you know, and I think everybody, you know, everybody's got a county agent, whether or not they know it, they should get to know them if you're a farmer. Um, and they're, they're great resources and they can plug you into different, um, you know, into different uh, circles. It, it it wasn't long before my extension agent asked me to be on their board, and um, and you get to meet different people. And and I I think that the whole beauty of localism is that you know you you have a core circle, and and I, I think of life as as overlapping Venn diagrams. Okay, everybody's got their core circle, and then but all those core circles overlap with each other at some at some level, and. I, I really, I want all my friends to be friends with my friends. And the only way to do that is to introduce your friends to your other friends. Right. And, and so maybe they can, you know, maybe they can do something for somebody else somewhere else. And I don't think that that breaks localism. That's, you know, the, one of the key principles of distributism. And so the Chesterton society is formally, formally does not use uh, the term distributism anymore. They, uh, they use the term localism be because of the negative connotations that come from from people really not understanding what distributism is and thinking that it means redistribution of wealth. And it's not. It's it is the distribution of the means 
of it's the distribution of ownership of the means to make your own living. Okay. Whether that's, whether that's land or whether that's a shop or whether that's a skill, you know, that's what distributism is. And, and localism at its, at its best is, um, um, being intensely connected to your, you know, the, the heart of the heart of distributism and localism is the family. And then it, and then it builds, you know, to, to the village and then the community and the, and the principles there are that you should never do anything at a higher level that, that can be done at a lower level. So the, so the city should never make a decision for a family that a family can make. And the state should never make a decision for a local community that the local community can make. That's what the principle of subsidiarity is. Um, when you try to make hard and fast rules that apply to everybody everywhere, then you're breaking the principle of subsidiarity. Hmm. And so I, I like the idea of local people getting together. So the Chesterton Society is wonderful because they have local Chesterton societies around the country, but they get together every year at a national conference and, and, and they share and then they trade and whoever is the local, whoever <clears throat> has the local conference, you know, where they, where they go that year, that person is in charge of putting it on, you know? Um, so uh, if I was to visit you, I wouldn't presume to tell you how to do things on your property. That's different than mine. Okay but I would be looking to learn things that I can take from your property, nuts and seeds to bring back here, you know, and techniques that I can then teach my neighbors. Yeah. I think, I think one of the most uh, beautiful things about um, the way you operate in the world, Tom, is that you really do, you know, capitalism writ large at the global scale, right. Has is very much about a scarcity mindset, right? It's about like, there's not enough of this stuff and we have, that's why we have to charge for it. Right. Um, that's how you, you, you make your money. Uh, but you live this, this life of abundance, right? You, you, I mean, you're, you're, you sort of, it seems like you sort of like have been stewarding this land because it was the right thing to do. And it, mm -hmm. and it has all this potential energy, right. Uh, mm -hmm. as you've in your own terms um but it seems like most of the time you have this eye to how can i give this stuff away because that's the capital that i'm building locally that is um you know if i'm if if you're just making the maple liqueur for yourself what's the point right like wh why why just make it for yourself you have this abundance why not share it with others um and what i think you know, that's definitely something I aspire to, because I, I think that, you know, abundance is just like just like pessimism and negativity can catch. Right. Positivity and abundance can catch, too. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I I don't like growing onions, but I don't have to grow onions. If my neighbor likes growing onions, I can grow blueberries. Right. Enough right. for all the neighbors. And, and I can be the blueberry guy and someone else can be the onion onion person and someone else can be the squash person. Right. Um and I think that it's it shouldn't be very radical because it, it is one of these like fundamental tenets of of what we the myth we tell ourselves about Amer being an American, right? But it is pretty it is pretty rare. It's pretty radical to be like I'm going to think as much about what I can give away and the connections I can make through that those gifts um, as what I can provide for myself. You know, yeah, you know, it's interesting, Trace. You 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 talk about 
you know, you and your neighbor growing different things, but that, that presupposes a community mm-hmm. and, you know, the God is a community, father, son, and Holy spirit are a community, you know, is a community and the family is a community and the neighborhood is a community and the village is a community. You can't, you can't have, um, specialization apart from a community. Okay. But if everything is made, if everything is made for atomization and transaction, then the community starts to break down and everybody looks at each other askance. Okay. And so one of the things that I find really odd and disturbing about society these days is that you, there's an immediate presumption of some kind of ooginess. Okay. If you're, if you try to be genuine, nobody's genuine. Everybody lies. You know, everybody's looking out for themselves. So anybody else that does something differently needs to be looked at askance. Okay. But it's it's not just capitalism that, that thinks of scarcity. Communism says their things are scarce. So the state will decide who gets what. Mm-hmm. Okay. In Chesterton, in, in his just brilliant, brilliant book, The Outline of Sanity, which is an outline for distributism, um, he says that capitalism will ultimately fulfill the promises of socialism. Okay. Um, <laughs> that, that, that capitalism and socialism are the twin evils that suck men's souls by making them um, wage slaves to the, to the, to the, um, you know, to the industrial state. And, you know, one is a, one is a totalitarian state and the other is an, is, is a, economic oligarchic state, which which both do the same thing to men's souls. And the antidote to that is localism. The antidote to that is doing something on your own property um, with your, with your own skills and then sharing it, you know, you can make money off of it, but, but ultimately, you know, what, how sad is it to, to make your own beer or to make your own wine or to make your own liqueur and then sit in your own dungeon of your own making and drinking it by yourself? Okay. Instead of sharing it with someone. Yeah. You're a hundred percent right. I mean, I think, you know, that's been, you know, uh, you know, I put a small piece, you know, I started on the, the side yard, which is basically our front yard, um, started putting, you know, just planting flowers and the initial version of it was terrible. I mean, admittedly, I did a terrible job. It was really half-assed. But the second iteration looked a little bit better, and I have plans to make it better and better. I'm learning, right? But I have met more of my neighbors since I put that darn garden in the front yard than I did in the 10 years I lived here prior. Because now all the gardeners are like, what are you doing? Like, everyone's just like, what's going on here? You know? And, and you know, there's this myth, right, especially in the sub- American suburbs that, like, oh, the HOA is going to get pissed off. Your neighbor is going to look at you weird if you're doing something in your front yard that's nothing but grass. Uh, and the truth is that there's a lot of people thinking like this. You know, there's a lot of people that are just waiting for someone to take the lead. And then they'll be yep. like, oh, well, great. I'll do I'll do that in my front yard. I mean, there's a neighbor that, that mm-hmm. we're part of the pool, pool together. I've known them for, for a decade now. and it finally occurred to me that like they have all these blueberry bushes in their front yard, like way more than they could ever, um, you know, eat by themselves. Um, And that's been a connection point with us. We haven't had much to be able to talk about where we're, you know, and, and now we have this connection point, you know, that we're both interested in growing things. 
Um, and it's a genuine connection point. That's what I think is so fascinating is that there's, there is a, an, 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 an immediate, like almost spiritual connection. Once you start working with plants, start working with animals and start working with the land, no matter how degraded that land is. And it's almost like you're, you become initiated in this little club, right? And you kind of, yeah, kind of wink at each other and go, oh, I know what you're doing here. I know how you feel about the world. You know, you're, um, you're describing something that I talked about. You're describing something I talked about at the Chesterton conference um, this past, this past July in Milwaukee, I gave a presentation on, you know, localism and that, that it's not just this abstract, but it's an actual livable possible life. Okay. And I said, when you, when you grow, when you plant a garden, when you plant an orchard, when you grow anything, you are literally participating in creation. Okay, God has given you the ability to participate in creation and resurrection. Okay? No, no, absolutely, hundred, hundred percent, hundred percent. I think what you just said and resurrection. Think about the think about my. I've, I have a yellow tomato that's been growing outside my kitchen window on the east wall of the house that should be the least growable wall of the house okay mm -hmm. right below my kitchen window and it started because i because i dumped a, a, a i dumped a dead tomato six years ago out the window <laughs> and it, it grew the next spring it resurrected okay and so for the last five years i've harvested tomatoes off of that and i and i let us and i let a few rot and then it fall to the ground each year. So it's, you're participating in creation or resurrection. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You don't have, have to write those words, but that is what you're doing. Sure. Absolutely. And we have this reminder every year, you know, I think like if you, if you're really spending a lot of time outside observing the world, no matter how, again, no matter how degraded, right? Like, I mean, um, I'm not going to pretend that my neighborhood is some sort of like paragon of, of regenerative ag or something. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a 1960s suburban neighborhood, exactly what you'd expect that to look like, but there are 80 year old, 90 year old trees, you know, and I don't, I can't tell you how many hours I've spent in my backyard staring at my tulip poplars and just being amazed that like these things have been growing long twice as they've been around here for twice at least as twice as long as I've been on this planet. What can what things can I learn from the these animal or these creatures that I'm sharing this space with? Um and I don't know, it's just been it's it's been an astounding experience. And I, so I, I trees I get the same trees thing. Trees fascinate me. me. Did you know the tulip poplars are not poplars? Hmm. They're magnolias. Hmm. Okay. If you look at the tulip poplar's flowers in the spring, okay, they're 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 a magnolia, and mm. and the cone on the inside is the is the magnolia cone. Mm. Okay, it's it's fascinating. There are there are trees out there that are so the um, the black the black locust and the honey locust are are those those are in the bean family. Family, mm -hmm. Okay. Legumes they're closer. They're, they're, they're legumes. They're actually, they are in the legume. They're in the legume family and they're closer to green beans than they are to oaks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just look okay. at the flowers. The flowers are like exactly the same. 
Yeah, they, they really do. And what, what's interesting is we, we think the trees are all the same. No, they're, they are the woody cousins of their, of their non-woody plants. You know, <laughs> uh, sassafras is, sassafras is closer to a bay leaf than it is, you know, to an oak tree. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Well, what, what is it like, um, isn't there that like that I've seen a meme kind of a meme chart about like the brassica family that like basically all came from like one wild. And if you like one wild uh, plant and if you like if you, you know, select for bigger flowers, you get broccoli. And if you select right. for uh, different stems, you get Brussels sprouts. And it's mm. just like it's basically the same darn plant. But just they gave steroids, you know, genetic steroids to one aspect of it versus another. <laughs> and now we have, you know, 10 different species of plants um, from essentially one type of plant. You know, have you read, Tom, have you read um, The Hidden Life of Trees? Uh, Wollenbein. I absolutely love that book. I, and I've, yeah. given it as, I've given it as a gift. Yeah, all the, all, every chapter is like... It's the sm- it's the it, the smallest book that's ever taken me this long to read because I basically read a chapter and it takes me ten minutes and then I just spend about thirty or forty minutes staring off into the middle distance <laughs> going wow I never thought about it, this stuff. <laughs> it's that book that made me, you know, when I when I go when I go foraging for mushrooms, when Laura and I are on vacation up north and I go foraging for mushrooms, I will not pull the mushroom out of the ground. Okay. Mm. I will, I will, I will cut it. I will cut it off with a knife and, you know, to, to leave the, to leave the mycelium intact, you know, to leave the roots intact. Um, trees talk to each other through a symbiotic relationship with mushrooms. And if we can't, if we can't be amazed by that, I mean, Ch- if, if Chesterton knew that he would, he would have written books about that. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, trees and the fact that we know so little about them, like, it's like this thing that is like almost, you know, the first thing that you can draw as a child is a tree. It's this, this thing we understand implicitly and don't understand them at all, you know, really when it comes down to it. Um, you know, it's their world. We're just living in it. <laughs> a month and a half ago, I was in, a month and a half ago, I was in Owensboro visiting my third daughter and her family. And there was, they have some parks in town that have, magnificent specimens of just massive, massive trees. And they've done a, a, just a fantastic job of diversifying their trees, but these are old, old specimens. And um, I was looking for a particular acorn from a swamp white oak, because this is just a fantastic tree. And I'd love to have some of these at the farm. And I just couldn't find any, there just weren't any on the ground. And I, I had, you know, my wife and my daughter, we're at the playground with the two granddaughters and here I am wandering around this, this 12 acre park with my hands behind my back bent over looking for acorns. And <laughs> I get back to the original tree and my, my almost three-year-old granddaughter, Emma holds up this perfectly fresh had to have been like within the last 10 seconds dropped swamp white oak acorn that was half the uh, swamp yeah swamp white oak that was half the size of her hand and she picks it up and she goes here dither are you looking for this i go <laughs> yes honey i'm looking for exactly <laughs> that mm. you know 
It's amazing. I want to, I want to get back to um, the topic of distributism and Chesterton. And, um, you know, at the time that we scheduled this uh, discussion, there was a lot of talk uh, on Twitter and a lot of contentious talk on, on sort of the DO sphere, if you will, on Twitter about distributism. And, you know, I, I have distributism in my profile. I'm a believer of distributism. Uh, one of the things that is really interesting to me, and I've, I've actually played both sides of the issue, uh, is, is the capacity for distributism today uh, and the sort of political, cultural, uh, religious, non-religious environment that we live in, right? And my fundamental question is like, what do you think about the prospect of distributism without a moral foundation? Um, and, and maybe that brings up a practical example for you. You know, um, uh, how do you feel like you can coexist um, in sort of a an, an unofficial economy, a localist economy within your community if you have different morals uh, from, from your neighbors or conflicting morals? Um, and whatever that question means to you, maybe we can take that in a few different directions, but... Um, it's it's really there. interesting because there there are there are some folks who genuinely believe that we need to have a gatekeeper type um, mindset, you know, to to keep bad actors. The, you know, the the idea there is that is that because people are fallen, bad actors are going to try to come in and hijack your you know your your good gig. Okay, and. And my response to that is, when has it ever not been thus? Okay, um, there there've always been bad actors, and in the Middle Ages, everybody. So, you you guys remember the old show Justified? You follow that show? Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so probably the best line, my favorite line in that show is Raylan Givens is driving this dude, you know, to 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 be handed over to his, um, you know to his parole officer that it, that had jumped bail. And, and the guy was just, just would not shut up. And Raylan says to him, you know, something, if you meet an asshole in the morning, you met an asshole, but if you meet assholes all day long, you're the asshole. <laughs> and and the, the point there is that, you know, even in medieval times when people lived in small villages, everybody knew who that guy was. Okay. But, the, the village itself, the everybody knew who who was fervent believers and who were semi-believers and who was the asshole, right? But you could only be so much of a dick because eventually people wouldn't buy from you, right? Or they wouldn't talk to you, or they wouldn't help you if you got sick. Okay. So so there was a natural limit. And I think that that natural limit still applies. Okay. We know here in our community on the knob who doesn't get help and who doesn't ask for it and is never going to get it. Okay. And we know who runs to each other's aid. You know, when the group chat comes up and says, Hey, somebody, something just happened. It's, you know, who's going to be offering help. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and, and it's never not been thus. Okay. So, is distributism possible today on a large scale? Well, it's certainly not imposed. Hmm. Distributism can never start from the top down because it, that 
in itself breaks the principle of subsidiarity, right? Mm -hmm. So for distributism to work, it has to start at a local level. Now, it's difficult for it to start at a local level today. Why? Because people don't have the means today. Like people don't, how many people today can't even afford to buy a home? Mm -hmm. Okay. And, And they don't make a living wage. So it's pretty hard, you know, to, it, it's hard to be like my sister does flowers for weddings and events. Okay. But she has to compete against, you know, Costco. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so it's difficult to do that. Um, it's difficult for mom and pop to compete. You know, we've got a local coffee shop here in town. It's a local coffee shop. And, and yet, at three o'clock in the afternoon, there's 16 cars in line at the Starbucks on the bypass. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when, when for less than half the price, they can get a better cup of coffee at the local coffee shop. Okay. So you can't force distributism and just like you can't force morality. If you're, if, if you're going to make your red line of what you will and won't accept so close to your body, that only you exist in an atomized person, okay, then when you die, you die and nothing else, you know, can ever possibly move on, right? Mm-hmm. But, but if you, you know, so somebody said to me at the Chestering Conference this year, says, you have, you have lesbians in your village? And I said, yes. He said, and you invited them over to your house? Yes. What do you talk about? Like lots of things, like you know, uh, liqueur, yeah. gardening, right, right? How much we love our families, okay? Yeah. And 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 he the says, books you've read, the TV shows you right, guys have watched. Right. And, you know? and what's interesting is that the the priest that was in the discussion jumps in and he says he's friends with them because he doesn't. They're not a placeholder for his ideology. Mm. Okay, and, and that's a real that's a really important point. If you look at people as a placeholder for your ideology, then you're never going to be able to be friends with anybody. And your circle is 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 going to necessarily be small. And if your kids decide to go off on their own and leave your circle, then you're going to be sad and they won't be part of your circle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that our kids want to come back to the farm. I'm, I'm thankful that our kids like it here. You know, they don't all live here. Cause they've got, you know, different lives. It's not possible for my oldest daughter and her husband to live here because he's an engineer for the air force and he has to live where he lives. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> and so it, it you know, you, you do the best you can in the moment that you can do it in whatever it is that you're doing and you build locally. And I think that's how distributism is going to make it. I think that localism is going to win the day eventually, and whether it's through another Carrington event or whether it's through a, a long, slow process. I mean, listen, the, the, the hubris of thinking that we're going to do it in our in our age when when it hasn't been able to be done up until now throughout humanity is just uh, it's 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 high hubris, mm-hmm. you know. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned. um uh, I guess what, one of my concerns with the prospect of distributism is that it seems to me, you know, a certain element hinges on the need for a trust-based society. 
And from my perspective, you know, a trust-based society um, is a pro, you know, uh, in, in large part at least, a product of many generations in place. You know, uh, families who have known families for a long, long time. Um, and when when that is a case, when that is the case, when families know each other for a long, long time, and families and people know a place for a long, long time, um, they treat. They treat their place certainly, and they treat their neighbors with grace, and they give them uh, a lot of leeway uh, for disagreement. Uh, you know, that's just my personal perspective. And no, that's it, that's not just a personal perspective; that's a correct perspective. Sure. I mean, yeah. Let me put it to you this way: people that don't live in those communities, like people that live in the city, what do they always long for? Mm. Mm. Do they long for more noise, or do they long for a weekend? Why, why do they go to Airbnbs in the country? Mm. Mm. Okay. So there's, there's a, there are fundamental truths. Okay. So, you know, we, we talk about the transcendentals, right? Um, beauty, goodness, and truth. They, they, they transcend everything. Okay. And so people know what is true, whether or not they practice it. Mm. Okay. They know what goodness is, whether or not they practice it. Okay. And so people that live in the cities and that live that rat race and have convinced themselves that that's what they really ought to be doing. They look longingly at pictures like in your profile of the mountains. Okay. Mm -hmm. They look longingly at pictures of, of my woods in the fall. Okay. Or of, of Laura holding a, a, you know, a massive bowl of fruit that's just overflowing. They, they look longingly at that. Okay. And, and they know that it's true and they know that it's good and they know that it's beautiful. And, and so what I think society as a, if society had a collective brain, society's collective brain would say, there are people like in the DO community that are that are holding that on and passing that on, even if I'm not participating in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where you know where where I was where I was going was um, you know so distributism perhaps is you know hinges on a high trust society and so high trust society perhaps hinges on you know many generations in place. Um, uh, strikes me now, uh, you know, vast generalization, obviously, but uh, we are lacking in trust. We are excessive in hypermobility. Um, yep. So how do we how do we get from you know from here to there? You know, my uh, I love the theory of distributism. I've seen it in practice. You know, in my own life, you know, in a small d distributism sense. You know, a localism sense. You know, it's very much the way I grew up. Um, but that seems to be fewer and farther between. And, you know, um, when I was pressing against folks who made the distributism can be a large tent uh, argument, you know, I was saying, I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure about that because my perspective now is that we as a society are very thin in trust and we don't have a whole heck of a lot of shared morals and, you know, I made an off-color joke, perhaps, but, you know, I, I felt like a lib version of distributism was going to be more about grievance disputes uh, and less about the actual work getting done. Because, you know, 
distributism and, and, and small scale private productive property ownership is work uh, um, and, and subsidiarity and self governance is work. Um, and when yep. you don't have a high trust society, it, um, it's grievance disputes one after another after another. So, like, how how could we get there? Is you know that that's my doom, I guess. So, <laughs> from, from how do you, how I agree with you that that's what it's turning into, but that's that doesn't. It's not what it has to be. So, sure. Sure. You, you know, I've made it clear that my kids don't have to live here because I can't. So, first of all, I can't force them to come live here. Okay. But I've always made it clear that there is room for them here. And if they do want to live here, we'll, we'll make room for them. Okay. If they want to build their own house here, there'll be room for them. Okay. If they, if one of them wants to take over this house, they can have it. And Laura and I will build a cottage. Okay. To, to live in. And, and they come back here to touch the place and they know that. And I think that, well, at least two of the four, would like to come back here and actually live here. Okay. But, but they have to have that imbued in them. They have to have that not, 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 it's, it's not like a, it's, it's not like a North Korean camp, you know, where you're, where you're doing indoctrination. They have to see it from, from a, from a standpoint of love. You can't fake that love for your own place. So if you don't love your place, you're not going to, you, you know, you're not going to pass that on to your kids. You have to have the actual love for the place. And once they see that, then, then they can know that it's okay to love it and then learn to love it themselves. Um, and, and, and it doesn't just have to be your kids. I mean, it's your, I can't tell you how many friends that we've had come here that, that want to, that I've got a, my college roommate that I hadn't talked to in 35 years just came and visited me with his wife and is now asking me about going to look at land for him out here. Awesome. Okay. Be, be, because he's going to, he wants to move from California to, to, to something that's genuine. And this is goes back to what I was saying about people know the transcendentals when they see it. Hmm. Okay. And so if you share your land instead of hiding it, you know, if you, you know, when the, when the UPS lady comes up here and she goes, I've, ne I've never even knew this place existed. I go, you want to come take a look? Yeah, actually I do. <laughs> you know, can I get you a water? And then let's go look around. <clears throat> you got to do that with your places. Okay. Mm -hmm. Trace, you know, invite people over AC, invite people over and show them, mm -hmm. make it a place for people to, to want to come visit. Yeah, I like to say that, you know, you, you, someone cannot steal something which is freely given. Um, and I think that that's probably one of the core aspects of the turn the other cheek kind of mantra that people always bring in. There's the, the, the surface one, which is if someone does you harm, you know, you, you're getting riches in heaven. So who cares what earthly harms you're facing? But I think there's the more fundamental aspect of, of that teaching and, and various other teachings in the Bible, which are that, you know, the Romans did not kill Jesus. He gave his life freely, right? And that is a very fundamental um, difference, right? He wasn't a victim. He wasn't a victim at all. It was it was a gift of love. And I think that, you know, a, a whole lot of people in America right now are saying, I want to be part of a community 
but they don't want to do the work that is necessary to create a community. Um, and if everyone's stand, sitting around playing chicken with each other, being like, well, I don't want to be the first one to just, I don't want to be taken advantage of. That's what I hear in cities all the time. It's like, I don't want to just give stuff away because then people will just take advantage of it. And that's why yeah, I, that's where I always come back and say, yes, exactly. That's why I always come and say, well, if I'm giving it away, then no one's taking advantage of me, right? I'm giving it away. It doesn't really matter um, what other people's motives are for taking it from me because um, I'm giving it away. Um, and it also is, you, you mentioned this earlier, Tom, it is a little bit um, disarming, right? Like I, I, in a low trust society, people don't know what to do with someone who comes to every interaction with a degree of trust innately, you know, saying like, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And in fact, I'm going to give you first and expect nothing in return is a completely alien concept to, to modern American society. Um, but it's surprising how many people respond to it. I think that we have this feeling that like, if I do that, people will take advantage of me. And the truth is, is that most it, it, you, you activate in some, in others, something that is some that is somewhat innate, this kind of sense yeah, so of like, it, actually, you know, we do owe something to each other as a society, as a community. You, and you if do. you give first, I will give in return, you know, you, you, you do owe something to other people and you, and, and you ought to give. And, and this whole idea that it's it, that it's hard, everything is hard. Your job is hard. It's just a different kind of hard. And if you you know uh, Adam, who tweets at Empty America, talks about how many hours that you know. What are the hours that are required in in you know farming certain types of grains or farming certain types of you know cattle? You know here in Kentucky, most of the farming is cattle farming. Now some people do grow corn and they rotate corn and soy and. Some even do wheat, but most of the farming is, you know, is pastured cattle farming. It's not CAFOs. And, you know, the, these guys make a sufficient living, but they're not super wealthy, but they're happy. Okay. And when you can, when you can step, when you can step out of the rat race and, and figure out what's sufficient. I mean, I just came back from the Amish today with my, with, with 50 pounds of, you know, dough. I shot a dough on Saturday they had it ready for me yesterday. Um, you know, I, I was out sitting in the stand this afternoon, had a really, really large buck walk past that I could not get a shot at because of the brush. And I didn't want to take that shot because I didn't think it would be ethical. But, you know, Laura and I buy almost no meat. Okay. We buy very, very little meat because, you know, it's essentially free for me here. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if I, if I did all the processing myself, it would be a lot less, but I actually like going to the Amish. Okay. And I get my meat for under $2 a pound processed and wrapped and, you know, vacuum sealed and labeled and everything. And, and I know the folks there and, um, that's localism. Right. And, you know, between, yeah, I, I think that it's much easier to make a living, a, a sufficient living, and, and, and a genuinely happy living than people think. They've been duped. People have been duped and socially engineered in thinking that you have to be on the treadmill, that you have to be suffering. And you ought to read Joseph Pieper's book, Leisure, The Basis of Culture. Okay. Um, AC, do you know that book? I'm familiar with it, but I, didn't I haven't read it. Yeah, it's just... You know, 
we we were we were not we were not made to be wage slaves. We were not made to work all day long in a factory. Okay. Our, our, purpose, <laughs> our purpose of living is not to work. Mm-hmm. Your purpose of, of working is to live. And, and, and that we've got so many people today, the majority of people I would venture to say that have totally bought in on that and go, yeah, that's crazy. No, we're supposed to be working. That's, that's how you find value in life. Right. My, you know, my, my third daughter graduated with, with honors in three years from, from college, um, summa cum laude and presented a present as an undergraduate presented her, you know, presented her research at the Midwest psychological association and the women in her department were incensed when she got married and had a kid after, after graduating because she, you know, she turned her back on the movement or whatever the heck that's supposed to mean. Right. Because, you know, she, she didn't go to, to work all of her life. Okay. And she's, she's got two kids and a third any day that it's going to be born. And, and that's the sumum bonum, not working all day until you can't stand up and, you know, having a good distributist life, leading a rural life is charming for a reason. Hmm. Okay. My cousins that live in the city, they're far less happier than I am today. Okay. Hmm. They're far, far less happier than I am. Hmm. Do you, do you see, wish that you lived in the city? I, I, I kind of do uh, at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not from the city. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a very small rural village in New Hampshire. I still have my property owner. My fam- all my family's up there. The family farm is up there, and everything else. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of like a stranger without a country. Um, you know where I'm currently at right now. Um, but I, you know, I do, I do agree with you. I think people uh, know know beauty and transcendentalism when they see it. Like you said, um, they they may not know why. They may not know why exactly uh, um, they gravitate towards those things, and I think it's sort of our job to to guide them back home, you know, in a certain certain Man, way. And I, that's I said what this, Dio's job is. Yeah, I said that in the past. You know, you know, um, the way I grew up is is very much the Dio uh, way right now, and you know, everybody thinks that it's hard work, and everybody thinks that you know it's been so long ago. And for me, it was, you know, it was 30 years ago, I was a kid, um, you know, and, and and my brother is very much living the same life and he's raising his kids the way we grew up or his son and hopefully future more kids. But the way that the way that we grew up, um, it's it's possible. It's possible if you had the right priorities. Right. So um, perhaps we can evangelize and and guide people um, to the good life, to the good life. So. Yeah. And as people say, dude, you're 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 60. I'm almost not quite, but. You know, and I still have to chainsaw and I cut my own wood, you know, and I got I got the wood stove going right now so that I don't have to use the the furnace in the house. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, it's work and it's good for you, you know, and, and the dudes that post their pictures from the gym, you know, and you know how buff they are. I, I challenge you to lift a 200 pound slack deer off the ground and throw it in the back of your truck. And I've had young guys, young gym rats say to me, what are you talking about, old man? You just grab it and throw it in the truck. I'm like, 
dude, it's not on a fixed bar. Okay. Try to lift dead weight for no reason. (laughs) Try to lift a, try to lift a slack 200 pound, try to lift a seven foot long, 200 pound chain off the ground. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. That, you know, just it's, there's, there's real, it's, it's different. The the workout here is different and it's good. It's the kind of work that God intended, you know, cutting logs and, and like literally hoeing the ground. That's I'm, I'm telling you getting, getting on your knees with, with a hand, with a hand trowel and digging weeds will, will sap your energy quickly. Sure. Okay. And, and that's good work. Mm-hmm. I want to, uh, we're, we're starting to run, run long on time, but there is an, another aspect that we haven't talked about. You mentioned it, but that's, um, you know, your association with cultural debris. I, I, I've been interested in that and I followed your trip um, to, to Italy recently. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about cultural debris. What is it? Well, why, it's not my gig. Cultural, sure. cultural debris is the cultural debris is the project of Alan Cornett who tweets at Alan Cornett and mm-hmm. at cultural debris. But, um, you know, we were Twitter mutuals. And so here's, here's again, overlapping Venn diagrams. We're, we're Twitter mutuals. I find out that he lives, you know, an hour away from me. I sent him a DM and said, Hey, would you like to have coffee? And he says, sure. And we become friends. And I said, Hey, have you ever thought about, um, doing a trip with your listeners and he says yeah i don't know that i've got enough listeners that would want to go on a trip but yes i'd love to do that have you ever done that i said yeah i've actually done that professionally you know and and so we 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 talked about it and and you know we 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 picked a place that that i was pretty familiar with um that had been to a few times had some help from people there on the ground and you know my when my family and I went there this past spring. We kind of did a dry run of the trip and, and, you know, Alan started, uh, uh, he, he advertised it on his podcast and we both tweeted about it and, um, we filled up one week, very small group, six, you know, six guests. The idea was that we would, we would do a deep dive, a a week long deep dive into one place that people don't otherwise go to. Okay. And Genoa, I think, is the best city in Italy. Um, it, nobody goes to visit it. Why? Because everybody goes to Rome, Florence, and Venice. Mm. And and you know, it's this it's this magnificent city um, that people might have heard about. Columbus is from there, and it's it's just a it's a wonderful place, and it has riches to mine for for a whole week. And we, we ate breakfast together every day. We had, we had a main meal together every day. We did some kind of activity together every day and people got to be good friends on this trip, you know, and, and they still talk to each other in the group chat. And, um, it, it, it is, it is literally doing localism at, you know, localism at a, at a next higher level, learning about another local place. And localism on tour. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. And it, it, it turned out great. And we're, we're thinking about doing two trips next year, you know, one to Bavaria and, and, and one back to Genoa again. So 
Awesome. We'd, we'd what, what, is, what is the concept of cultural debris? And I, I would love to maybe maybe you can make an introduction to, to Alan. It'd be I, great I'd to have him on. And I, you know, I don't I don't want you to speak for him, but you know, just in general, we've we've teased well, it. You know, what is the so, high level? Alan is a near adjacent to to DO. He follows the DO circles and he and and you know he reads many of the of the DO you know conversations. Um cultural debris takes its name from a Russell Kirk um essay of the same title cultural debris and alan cornett was a was a um assistant to russell kirk um and he's kept in contact with the with the kirk family and the kirk center over the years and so he his his idea is to interview people that are interesting to him um it, it, that talks about culture and so he he has had people on that talk about architecture He's had people on to talk about localism. Um, he's had people on to talk about conservatism and 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 the original conservatism of Russell Kirk. You know, um, he he talks to um, he interviewed Danielle O'Terry, who was who wrote a magnificent article a couple of years ago called the the secrets of the unicorn tapestry. Um, and she does her own tours to Southern Italy. And it was a magnificent, just a lovely interview to listen to. And I, you know, I, I reached out to, to Alan because I listened to some of his podcasts and I, and I, I liked some of his tweets and he seemed like an interesting person and he was close by. And I thought, well, this is how you expand your circles. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great story. Um, I, and and I in think, fact, he's going to be speaking at the Chesterton Conference next year on perfect. Chesterton and Russell Kirk. Perfect. Beautiful. Fantastic. Tom, this has been great. I, I don't want to take up uh, too much more of your time, but I do want to give you the opportunity to sort of give any closing remarks that you might have, last last thoughts, and also, you know, anything you'd like to, to plug. Obviously, follow, follow Tom on Twitter, but um any parting thoughts i think this, this conversation has been fantastic it's been great to meet you well thank you i would i would ask everybody to 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 try to expand your circle of friends and if you think that your friends are good enough to be your friends introduce them to other people okay and then really do the best that you can do at whatever it is that you're doing at the moment that you're doing and then it's going to attract other people to want to do the same mm. And meet your mutuals in real life, right? <laughs> Love everyone. No caveats. Absolutely. Mm. Tom, Trace, this has been fantastic. Thank you for joining us, Tom. We, we look forward to, to more tweets and more cordials on Twitter. Um, I hope Thanks, everybody enjoying this conversation. It was really great to meet you. Um, we will see you really on the other side. You guys. I mean, just super to meet you in person. Thanks, Absolutely. Trace. I'll see you soon, too. Thank you, Tom. All right, great. Take care. Ooh.